We're starting off with 1 Peter, and then I probably don't really read, need to read Daniel 1 because that play was so good, but just in case I mispronounce Abednego's name, we will do it. To Peter, to Peter an apostle of Jesus Christ. To God, to God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come to you so that your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perished even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you. When they spoke of these things that you have now been told, by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. Okay, now let's flip over to Daniel, starting at the first, very first bit of Daniel. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring, he ordered king Ashpenaz, chief of the court of officials, to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude of every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table, and they were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to enter the king's service. Among them were some from Judea, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief officials gave them some new names. To Daniel, the name Belshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Meshach and to Azariah Abednego. 
But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the raw food and wine, and he asked the chief for permission not to defile himself in this way. Now God had caused the official to show favour and sympathy to Daniel, but the officials told Daniel, I am afraid of the Lord the King who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men at your age? The king would then have had my head because of this, because of you. Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief officials had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare your appearance with that of the young men who eat the raw food and treat your servants in accordance with that what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the raw food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine that they were to drink and gave them just vegetables instead. Mm. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learnings and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and the dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them to the chief officials, presented them to King Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every manner of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in the kingdom, whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. About 20 years ago, I was driving away from my home, five hours down the road to start uni for the first time in Wagga. It was a strange feeling leaving home behind like that. I didn't know a single person at the uni, didn't know a single person in the town, in fact, of Wagga. I'd never been there. And in fact, I'd, I'd hardly been away from home that much at all, really, when you looked at it. In some ways, I'd lived a kind of fairly sheltered life. Uh, I grew up in a Christian home. I went to a public school, but I hadn't really got caught up with some of the things that you can there. In some ways, I deliberately kind of kept a distance. But there I was with my car packed full of everything I owned, driving along with my parents in the car in front of me, about to drop me off in Wagga, them have a cup of tea and then turn around and drive off. And I really didn't feel prepared for all the unknowns that I was about to face. And I remember thinking to myself, quite clearly, how am I going to be a Christian at uni? I had plenty of time to think about that, actually, as I was driving along in a car on my own for five hours. And I kept thinking about it during O-Week, Orientation Week. I remember I went on a tour of the residential side of campus And all the tour guide told us, the only information that she managed to impart was where you could buy alcohol, how block parties worked, who got drunk where. Now being, um, as I was, not knowing a single person, let alone a Christian, I decided that week that the answer to my burning question, you know, how am I going to be a Christian at uni, was that in this hostile environment, I was going to have to compromise. I was going to have to take, stop taking God so seriously or I was just not going to survive. Everyone who's a Christian has asked themselves my question at some point in, the, in their lives. How am I going to be a Christian in this new situation? You know, whether it's starting uni or a job 
or a new, joining a new team even. For some of us, it might actually be a question that we ask almost on a daily basis. How am I going to be a Christian today in my workplace? Or how am I going to be a Christian today in my high school? The book of Daniel has got a lot of great things to say to these kind of questions because it outlines some of the hardest situations that a believer in God can ever imagine finding themselves in. And yet even still, Daniel never comes to the hopeless conclusion I came to. You won't ever hear Daniel saying, you're just going to have to compromise your faith in God. Today we start a five-week series in the first half of Daniel, and next year at some point we'll come back and continue on in the second half of Daniel. Today we see three things in chapter one that are incredibly useful when it comes to situations where we feel that pressure to compromise. But first, I want you to imagine what it must have been like to be Daniel. You know, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, he laid siege to Jerusalem in 605 BC. Imagine you're looking out at the Babylon army there, day by day, praying that God would keep the walls up and Nebuchadnezzar would give in and go home. But it seems your prayer and your God have failed because Nebuchadnezzar wins the day. Now, it's not clear exactly how things played out, but it seems likely that Jehoiakim gave in and surrendered. Maybe he bought off Nebuchadnezzar with some of the treasures from the temple and and a promise of allegiance to him. So Nebuchadnezzar takes what he wants from God's temple to put them into his God's temple to prove that his gods are the best ones. To the world, it looks like Nebuchadnezzar is stronger than your God. And this isn't just a theological problem for you, of course, because Nebuchadnezzar also takes some of the best of the locals, young, strong, future leaders into his service, and you, Daniel, find yourself in this group. You're forced to leave behind a humiliated city, leave behind your family, and perhaps the worst part is that you're going to be forced into the service of your enemy. How do you think Daniel would have been feeling? On the long walk to Babylon from Jerusalem, surely Daniel must have been thinking, how am I going to serve God under the rule of my enemies? Is it even possible? Is it even worth it, especially given what's happened? What would you do in this situation? I mean, think about what the options are. You could give up on God completely and just assimilate and become like the Babylonians. Or you could stick with God when it seemed to work, but then give up on God when it didn't really seem to work. You know, you could become a kind of pluralist. Or you could stand by God. But then what would that look like? Because it could look like laying down on the road, refusing to go to Babylon and being killed in a, in a kind of silent process. Or it could look like trying to escape and, and running back home. Or it could look like infiltrating the enemy ranks, biding your time and, you know, sabotaging from the inside, or at least being a really hopeless worker for the enemy, you know, wasting your time, stealing pens, deliberately jamming the photocopier, that sort of thing. But none of those were an option for Daniel because of something that he knows about God. Look at how he describes what happened in verse 2. This is how he writes about it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. 
Who's behind the fall of Jehoiakim? Who's behind even the ransacking of the temple? Ultimately, it's God. Nebuchadnezzar might think that his strength has won the day and the world might think that too, but it's actually God who stands behind it all. Daniel knows this. He was someone who listened to God's prophets, who warned that this was coming. The kings at the time, they refused to listen to God, but Daniel knows that this is God's judgment and he knows it's going to last 70 years, his whole lifetime pretty much. And most importantly, Daniel is going to stand by his God because he knows that God is the true ruler who actually stands behind all things. That doesn't mean it was going to be easy for him or for any of the Israelite exiles. This was only the first wave, there was many more to come after this. Over the whole book of Daniel, we see just what a struggle it can be. And today, in this opening chapter, we learn three things about what it looks like to serve God when you're under an authority that doesn't recognize Him. First, it doesn't mean you always have to fight the system. Serving God doesn't mean we're always fighting against the powers that be. See, Daniel doesn't lay down and die or run away. He doesn't pick his moment to assassinate Nebuchadnezzar. It's quite amazing what Daniel's willing to do, what he doesn't fight against. Nebuchadnezzar orders his chief official, Ashpenaz, to bring the best of the exiles into his service, and Daniel and his friends are chosen. But before they're to enter the king's service, look at what they had to do in verse 4. So Ashpenaz, the king's chief official, was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years and after that they were to enter the king's service. Daniel and his friends are to be immersed in the language, the culture and the education of Babylon for three years. They were to be housed by the king fed from the king's own table, given wine from the king, and then destined for positions of power in the kingdom. In other words, Babylon wants to assimilate them. They want them to blend in and and to become a part of the system. This was actually a pretty um, common practice back then in um, those days. You've got young, flexible kind of teenagers um, who, if you can reorientate their thinking and their practices and their beliefs, well then, for the rest of your life, you've got people who can serve you. You can even send them back to their home countries, and if you've done a good enough job, they'll remain loyal to you. You'd change their names to symbolise their loyalty to their new king, new nation, new gods. And so, did you notice how that happened? Daniel's name gets changed to Belteshazzar after Bel, or Marduk, the supreme god of all the gods of Babylon. They would have been educated in all the gods, superstitions and practices of the Babylonians. It was a completely different way of of viewing the world to what they knew to to be true from Scripture. And so, what did Daniel and his friends do about this? They go along with it. They could have fled, they could have fought, but they don't fight against it. It's quite amazing what they're willing to accept. And yet, as we'll see in a minute, this is not them assimilating, at least not in a way that denies God. 
They taught like Babylonians, dressed like Babylonians, understand their culture, know their literature, they're even able to think like Babylonians. But this chapter in the whole book makes it clear that even though they don't fight against any of these things, still they haven't betrayed God. I think one of the reasons I found it so hard um, starting at uni was that I'd grown up with a kind of fortress mentality as a Christian. I'm not sure my parents meant it, but I grew up thinking it was us versus them. Us, the people who believed in God, versus them, the people who didn't believe. It's not that my parents hated people who didn't believe. They didn't at all. But I think in a way they actually feared them. And the result was that in many ways we just withdrew. We didn't understand the people around us. We couldn't understand their worldview. We didn't know why they loved the things that they loved, why they believed what they believed. In many ways, we didn't speak the same cultural language. In one sense, we were always fighting against our own culture. One powerful thing that Daniel shows us is that if it was possible for him to engage in pagan Babylon back then, without denying God, it's more than possible for us today to engage deeply in our society without denying God. We should never think that we're serving God more faithfully if we're pulling back from society. Just because we pull back from society, that does not mean we are serving God more faithfully. But as Christians, don't you sometimes feel like that can be a tempting thing to do? All our friends can be Christians. All our time can be spent with Christians. We can feel like we don't get non-Christians. We can find ourselves afraid of the outside world. And we can get pretty annoyed with non-Christians pretty easily. And if we're not careful, we can find ourselves with a fortress mentality fighting the outside world. When it comes to our culture, are we always playing for the other team? You know, are we always against our culture, always on the other side? Or a different kind of analogy, are we always on the sidelines? Maybe not even understanding the rules, kind of like Americans with AFL. You know, you hear them say things like, it's like all oh, the games are mixed together, I just don't know what's happening. Is that what we're like as Christians? On the sidelines, not even understanding what's happening in our culture. The book of Daniel says to us, sometimes, actually a lot of the time, we can get out there and, and play ball with the rest. How do we do this? Well, we start by working hard at trying to understand the way our culture thinks. We have non-Christian friends. Do you have non-Christian friends? Real friends that you spend real time with. Are we trying to understand the way they do life? Why they think like they think? Why they love what they love? At the start of this year, I seriously considered putting community groups on hold for a term just to give you more time and encourage you to spend that time with people who aren't believers. See, it's very easy for us to end up in a Christian bubble when there's lots in our culture that we should be engaged with and there's lots of things that we can affirm. And even if we can't affirm something, it doesn't automatically mean that we have to fight against it. Daniel and his friends, they picked their battles and we should do the same. We shouldn't always be criticising. We shouldn't always and only ever be fighting. 
Daniel and his friends, they talk like Babylonians, they dress like Babylonians, they understand their culture, they know their literature, they're even able to think like Babylonians. But having said all that, in this chapter, we discover one thing they won't do. The one thing they won't do is eat like Babylonians. Have a look at verse 8. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. Daniel's drawn a line in the sand. He's accepted a lot. I mean, imagine what it would be like to be called after the gods of your enemies. He's accepted a lot, but eating the king's food was something that he just won't accept. Why? Why won't he eat their food? Well, it could be that the food wasn't in line with the laws of Moses in Scripture. It could be because the meat and wine was offered to, to idols, maybe, <clears throat> the idols of Babylon. It could have been that eating from the king's table was in a way to unite with him, to pledge a, de- a degree of allegiance and dependence on the king that belonged only to God. It might have been one of these things, it, it might have been all of them. We're not told exactly why, but Daniel knew that eating the king's food and drinking his wine would mean he was betraying God. Daniel must have known that a moment like this was coming. And this is the second thing that this chapter teaches us about serving God when you are under an authority that doesn't recognize Him. See, it doesn't mean you will never have to resist the system. Serving God doesn't mean we'll never have to fight against the powers that be. If we're serious about following God, we're guaranteed there'll be times when serving Him brings us into conflict with the authorities that exist in this world. Let's have a look and see how Daniel handles his dilemma. He asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Daniel's first port of call is quite civil, don't you think? He's resolved. He's decided that he's not going to eat this food no matter what, no compromise. But what's his first tactic? It's to ask permission. Mind you, this is still pretty bold because he goes almost to the top, to Ashpenaz, the chief official. We see what happens in in verse 9. Now God had caused the official to show favour and compassion to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord the king who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Even though the key person over Daniel is really kind and and compassionate to them, and it's God who gave them that situation, even though that's the case, still the chief official says no. God could have made it really easy at this point, but for some reason he doesn't. But Daniel still doesn't give in. I mean, he doesn't say, oh well, God's sovereign, it's out of my control, there's nothing else I can do. He absolutely knows God's sovereign, but have a look what he does in verse 11. Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Now, I'm not sure if this is the classic mum said no, so asked dad situation or not. Or perhaps Ashpenaz had said that He wasn't willing to be the one who said yes, but he was willing to turn a blind eye or something like that. Whatever the case, Daniel finds a way to compromise, but not to compromise on his beliefs, but to compromise about their health. 
chief official, he's scared that the king's going to be angry if some of his prized students are looking worse than the rest. And so Daniel says to the guard in verse 12, please test your servants for 10 days, give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink, then compare our appearance with that of the young meat who eat the, the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. The point here is not that vegetarianism is, is the best kind of diet, right? The point is that yet again, Daniel knows that God's in complete control and he entrusts himself to him. Enough to speak to the official, the chief official, Ashpenaz. He trusts himself to God enough to speak to the guard after the chief official's virtually said no. He trusts God's control enough to set up a situation where he can escape defiling himself and God may choose to oversee the outcome in his favour. The point's not that vegetarian, uh, vegetarianism is the best way to go. The point is that even vegetables are no barrier to God. We see what happens in verse 15. At the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. God chooses to bless their attempts to honour him. In some ways, it's hard to know what to do with this story, isn't it? I mean, imagine your boss wants you to do some shady deal that would make you dishonour God. I mean, what do you do? Suggest instead a test where you both eat, I mean, where you eat vegetables for 10 days and then at the end of it you see who's better looking? Now, I'm being silly, obviously, but do you see what I mean? What do we do with this? Is Daniel saying to us that we should set up our own tests? But there's nothing really in the Bible that tells us that God guarantees us that He's going to work that way. And just because He did it for Daniel doesn't mean He will for us. But if God hadn't have acted for Daniel, and they did actually look worse on vegetables, did Daniel still make the right choice not to defile himself? Would following God's way still have been the the wisest option, even if it had have got Daniel into trouble, even if he had have been killed? Yes, it would have. Yes, because of the truth which Daniel knows so well. God is in complete control. The beautiful thing about this chapter and the whole book of Daniel, every story in it, every prophecy in it, is that you keep finding this message that God always remains the true Lord. Always. If we know this like Daniel knew it, then we'll know in those situations where there's extreme pressure to compromise, where it feels like we're caught between a a rock in a hard place, we're actually safe in God's hand. We can afford to follow Him and we can afford not to be afraid. We don't need to be afraid. And this brings us to the third thing this chapter teaches us about serving God under authorities that don't recognise Him. Serving God means we don't need to fear the system. Serving God means He's always fighting for us and so we don't need to be afraid. Let's have a look at how this panned out for Daniel and his friends in verse 18. 
At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, so they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. See, that, that they beat the locals at their own game. The king finds them ten times better than anyone else. And it's not because they've withdrawn and, and refused to learn the ways of the Babylonians. It's not because they've resolved to read Scripture only. It's for an entirely different reason altogether. We see it back in 17. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. Again, God's in control. He gave them their understanding. He didn't want them to withdraw, but neither did he want them to compromise. God wanted them in that really difficult place, engaged in their world, but living for him no matter what. And that's only possible to do when you know God's in control. When you know that there's no higher authority than him. And when you know that because of that, there's nothing you need fear. When you fear God in heaven alone, you're actually liberated to speak to the person in front of you, whoever they are, without fear. We're in a situation in our lives that's not all that different in some ways, some small ways at least, to Israel in the exile. We read 1 Peter before and earlier in the year we, we, we preached on it as we, um, as we heard that we're all foreigners in this land waiting for our true home. We, we live here in Australia but we belong to another country, God's kingdom. And like the exiles, our highest authority here It's not a king, it's not an earthly government, it's not any authority that we could have. Our highest authority is God, our king is Jesus. But right now we live under other authorities and we come up against all sorts of competing claims upon us. And sometimes there's no problem, you know, we can embrace Jesus as our king and pay our taxes, observe the road rules, love the footy, send our kids to public schools, and and it's fine. But there will be times where we have to draw our own lines in the sand. These are not arbitrary lines. We don't go looking for fights, but it's inevitable that at times things will come along that we can't agree to or we'd be going against our God. What are you going to do at those times? If you know, not just with your head, but if you know it with your heart and with your own experience that God's in control, then you won't fear people. You'll fear God. You'll fear God. And in the face of, of that pressure, you'll calmly carry on without compromise. Because even if you lose the friend or you lose the job or you lose out financially, you'll know God's still in control. He's got your back. No force, no matter how evil or how strong, is stronger than Him. Even if we lose our lives, we're not lost to God. He holds us safe 
in his hands. We're going to see examples of this over and over again in the next few weeks as we continue in the book of Daniel and maybe as we share some examples from our own times as well. But let me finish today by completing the story I was telling you at the beginning. Because God in his kindness didn't let me entertain the idea of having to compromise for very long. It was still O-Week and um, back then you had to enrol in person and instead of all this online stuff, you could also study in person, which is probably a bit radical for some of you young ones. We're still O-Week and so we were sitting there at enrolment and there was a circle of about 20 people and I awkwardly joined this circle of strangers that I didn't know. And then along comes this man and and squats down about 10 people down from me and, and says to this guy, are you interested in studying the Bible? And the guy says, no. So he moves on to the next person and says, are you interested in studying the Bible? And the guy says, no. So he moves on to the next people. This happened 10 excruciating times. As I'm sitting there thinking, oh God, what am I supposed to say? Thinking I'd resolved that I'd have to compromise. But in God's sovereign control and in his extreme kindness, he put me in that situation where I realised I just had to say yes. And thankfully, in his sovereign control, he made Richard, the guy coming around, an extremely stubborn person who kept going despite all the setbacks. I said, yes, I was interested. And he wrote down my details and told me about AFES, Australian Fellowship of Evangelical Students on campus. And through that, God showed me how stupid my answer to the question was of how could I be a Christian at uni. It wasn't always going to be easy. But God is always in control. Do we know that? Do we feel that? God is always in control. And so no matter what, we don't ever need to withdraw. We don't ever need to compromise. And we don't ever need to be afraid. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we stand in awe of who you are and we are just so thankful that you are always in control. We're thankful, Lord, for the way that that changes everything. Lord, we can freely get on with loving the people around us, loving Australia, loving Adelaide, loving our city and, and um, to the northeast. Lord, we thank you that because you're in control when those pressured times come and we feel like we're just going to be smashed, that we can calmly lean on your sovereign control on your love for us. And Lord, thank you that we don't ever need fear. When the devil tempts us, Lord, remind us again and again of this truth. Keep bringing us back to it. And like Daniel, comfort us and give us great courage, not because of our strength, but because of your strength. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.